Within these walls, tyranny has tried to reach beyond the body to the inner recesses of the soul. I woke at midnight and saw my little brother smiling. I asked him why he smiled, and he said, I dreamed of Chairman Mao. The purpose of all learning is to fathom what goes on in Chairman Mao's mind. This mind holds all the truths that ever were or will be. Neither age, nor place, nor class has allowed escape from pounding, the chanting of Mao's litany in railroad stations, in stores, at work. Even those who built the wall so long ago must be forgotten, they have been told. No history but Mao's. I woke at midnight and saw my little brother smiling. I asked him why he smiled, and he said, I dreamed of Jeremy Mao. I dreamed of Jeremy Hi, I'm Eliana Lester. And I am Alan Jordan. And you're listening to the first bonus episode of the Lin Biao Power Hour, where we have a guest today, Justin Umali. Uh, Justin, you want to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Justin Umali. I'm a journalist working for Bulatlat, and I'm also an organizer for Bagong Alianza Makabayan in the Philippines. So, hello, and Thank you for inviting me here. Oh, sure. Um, so, basically, we are, you know, this podcast is focused on the culture revolution. And when we announced that it was happening, we got uh, a message from Matteo Deza that uh, with this uh, article that he wrote, that said, that was headlined, A Revolutionary Journey, the 1971 PAL Hijacking to Mao's China, uh, where you um, met with a Fructuoso Chua Jr. And why don't you tell us uh, what that was about, what he did? Actually, I didn't, I didn't get the chance to meet with Mr. Chuba, although I would like to. Okay. But I have interviewed a lot of students from Marabi State University. I, I talked to some of them about, and it's a really famous story in MSU, like one of those old school stories that everybody's talking about. Like, hey, did did you know that one of our alumni uh, hijacked a plane? Right. So <laughs> it's one of those. Uh, sure, of course. And yeah. You know, it's a really topical thing you know, to talk about because you know, right, with the, right now uh, there's some, let's just say, the relationship between the Philippines and China and between what socialism is and how people understand it. It's a really, it's a really good time to talk about uh, this story of six students actually trying to learn what socialism is right at the heart of you know the cultural revolution when it was happening and so that, and that's that's why i thought hey this is a good story to write 
Uh, and yeah, that's that's how the idea happened. Uh, they decided that it was a good idea to publish, and now it's out there. And what what exactly? Uh, you know what happened? What was this hijacking? Right. So on March 1971, uh, six students from Marawi State University, now one of the Philippines. Uh, one of the state universities in the Philippines uh, hijacked a plane boarding from the capital city, Manila, to Davao City. Yeah. They hijacked this plane and rerouted it all the way to China. Yeah. And all they had was one handgun and a few other stuff. And when they got there, they stayed in China for six years and actually lived in China. Yeah. And what the most interesting part, at least to me, is why they did it. Because usually people hijack planes for money or for political reasons or what. But these guys, they hijack the plane literally so they can go to China and so they could see what what was up with China. So so it was, it was like an like inquiry more than anything else. Yeah, like I send the article or. Uh, a search for revolutionary truth is what they turned it. So what was so? So they were students. What was the relationship to Maoism among students at the time? Uh, this was in 1971. So at this time, that this was at the height of the Cultural Revolution, and you know, it's. The thing about the Cultural Revolution is that it was felt worldwide, you know, so it wasn't just in China, but activists, communists, and everybody was feeling it. You know. In the Philippines, right, as early as 1964, yeah, uh, there were student organizations propping up, because this was right af after a long period of... Um, long period of anti-communist uh, activities, a long period of uh, basically analogous to McCarthyism and the, a lot of union busting, a lot of anti-communist propaganda. So in the 60s, this uh, new student movement just uh, exploded out of no, almost out of nowhere. But, uh, uh, in 1964, there was Kabatakang Makabayan or KM, one of the first uh, student movements that still uh, that really talked about Marxism and Maoism. Then four years later, the, uh, the Communist Party of the Philippines uh, re-emerged under Maoist lines. So they, we, uh, they established themselves under Mao Zedong thought. And then the year after that, the New People's Army. Really, there was this undercurrent of, um, of activists, trade union leaders, communists, revolutionaries, really trying to understand and trying to grasp Maoism. And they saw Chinese experience and they thought, uh, they surmised that this could be applied in the Philippines, that the conditions in China, the revolutionary conditions in China then, could be applied in the Philippines, in the Philippines because both countries shared similarities and uh, problems with imperialism, with feudalism, bureaucrat capitalism, and so on. By 1971, uh, in the student movement, you had KM, you had other groups like uh, SDK, Samahan ng Demokratikong Kabataan. This was a, a splinter group. And you had, uh, you even had workers, peasants joining 
student organizations like KM, you know, and you and this student movement was uh, embedded you know, in peasant communities, in workers' unions. And you had cultural organizations that uh, making new songs, plays, and so on. You know, it's it's a whole thing, right? And we um and this was also the birth of what what in the Philippine mass movement we call national democracy, right? So it takes from Maoist conclusions or it takes lessons from Mao's China and applies it in the Philippines. Right? It, it, Such as like class alliances um, to, for national democracy in order to set the stage for socialism. So national democrats advocate for land reform, for uh, national industrialization, the end of imperialism, and uh, other things. Sure. The goal of national democracy is to pave the way for socialist reconstruction. So it's really similar to new democracy. It essentially is from new democracy. Sure. And can we so go back to the hijacking? How did the hijacking actually go down on the plane? So the thing thing is in MSU, right? So the, these six students, they also they also had this. Uh, they were also they were also influenced by KM members, and that's why they. They had the idea, or they were. They end up becoming curious of go of undertaking the hijacking because they really wanted mm-hmm. to know, right? So what they did was first they, well, they had the idea that they wanted to go to China and see for themselves. That's where it all started. And they wanted to go to China, and the first idea that they got was, why don't we steal a yacht mm-hmm. and go to China? Thought. No, that's a bad idea. Do you know why they uh, changed their mind about the yacht? Um, it's either because they don't know how to swim or because they they just thought that they would be easily caught. I think it's more okay. like because they would be caught. Because like a like a coast guard or something. Yeah, coast guard. Like they might be stuck in international waters. And so they mm-hmm. thought that uh, a plane hijacking would be a safer idea. Mm-hmm. So they settled on that. Yeah. And... In order to get funds, they started uh, hosting movie nights at school. Do you know what kind of movies they played? Uh, sadly, no, and uh, I haven't gotten information on what movies exactly. Uh, that'd be that'd be interesting to find out. Yeah, I, I would like to find out actually. <laughs> yeah, that make a good uh, letterbox list. Uh, if I had to guess, probably some like the usual flicks from uh, famous at the time for FPJ or whatever. But, but yeah, but um, in any case, somehow they managed to uh, scrape enough money to go from Marawi to Manila, which is uh, if you know the Philippines, it's an archipelago. So that's those are different islands, right? So they managed to travel to Manila, buy a ticket, going from Manila to Davao, which is uh, another, which is prob- basically to, in today's terms is an hour flight. From Manila, so they managed to buy the tickets, and they also managed to buy, uh, smuggle some guns and mostly pistols, right? Mm-hmm. And the basic idea was they were going uh, after takeoff. They would go to the co- cockpit and tell the pilot, "Hey, this is a hijacking." <laughs> Would demand sure. How how many of them went up to the to the cockpit? 
Uh, there were six of them, right? But the plan was all six. All six went up at once. The plan was two of them would go to the cockpit. The rest would uh, stay behind and handle the passengers. Sure. So that was the plan. Was there some kind of signal to them to so that they know that the plan was working? Uh, the the signal would be the two two hijackers would go up to the cockpit, right? Sure. Well, I just remember uh, in the. Uh, in the uh, in in your article, it said um, a flight attendant named Elizabeth approached him and told him that somebody in the cockpit wanted to see him. Right. Right. And actually, before that, uh, when they were supposed to go to the cockpit, uh, some flight mm-hmm. uh, flight attendants uh, suddenly stood up and started giving snacks. Sure. Thought shit. Uh, this. This isn't going to work, and they pretended to go to the bathroom for a while, and that was. Sure. Did they actually go? Did they actually go inside yeah, the bathroom? Yeah, they pretended to. Yeah. Do How it. did they know that each other was leaving the bathroom at the same time? If if you don't know, it's okay. Yeah. So after that, there was a delay. They ended up going to the bathroom instead of the cockpit, and then they tried again after a while. Right. So it's been fifteen minutes. The original plan was after five minutes they would go to the cockpit and they already had a sure. ten minute delay, a uh, fifteen minute delay. Sorry, saw the opportunity and then the two of them uh, slipped into the cockpit uh, with nobody noticing. So at least so that part mm-hmm. of the plan sure. was okay. Now what did right? you what did you say the um where was the flight to and going to and from originally it started from the capital city of manila and going to davao city okay so wouldn't have had enough fuel to make it to china uh, barely they didn't have enough fuel did they did they i remember you said that they refueled in hong kong uh the captain informed them that they don't have they didn't have enough fuel to go to peking or beijing uh, and they only had enough to go to hong kong so that's what sure. happened and then and then they exchanged uh 19 uh he said that there was only there's only one uh, the the deal was that there would only be one worker from refueling and they would give out nineteen uh, passengers. Yeah, when they arrived at Hong Kong and they needed to refuel, they negotiated that nobody would come close to the plane except for uh, a fuel truck and yeah, a worker. In exchange, they would release nineteen passengers. And somehow they got that without mm-hmm. any, you know, without. Well, I think that the way it worked back then, I think that before 9-11, hijacking was like bank robbery, where what you're supposed to do is just go along with it. You know, like, or if you're like a cashier, right? Or at least how it is in America, if you're a cashier and you're trained that if someone pulls a gun on you and tells you to give them all the money in the cash register, you give it all to them. So I think that back then, in most places it worked in a similar fashion, or that if you hijacked a plane, they just complied with your demands until you started, unless you started killing people. Yeah, but when you think about it, it's also really, it's also really possible that they wouldn't, because if you remember, uh, remember what, on the Operation Entebbe, you know, by sure. by Israel against uh, Palestine. You know, so sure. <clears throat> there's also that possibility, although well, that's that's the that's the, Isra- that's the Israelis. They'll kill people over nothing. 
Yeah, and so this, so this worked. They traded the 19 passengers for refueling. Do we know how many passengers they had left? Uh, there were 44 passengers in, in crew inside okay. the plane. Yeah, and they... Sure. So, oh my god, I didn't expect to be doing math at this time. Our listeners can uh, take out their calculators. And then they went to Beijing, you said? Not exactly, because apparently there were no flights from Hong Kong to Beijing. So they only ended okay. up going to Guangdong. Oh, they, they went on a different plane? They used the plane and went to Guangdong because okay. uh, apparently yeah, uh, they were informed that their flights only went there because that had an international airport. Okay, okay. didn't really make sense that they were playing by those rules because they were already hijacking a plane. So, <laughs> you know. Confusing. They were probably nervous, you know. It was the first time hijacking. It's the first time hijacking a plane. They ended up in China, so I guess. Yeah. And they did it. Thing. And then once they got to China, where did they go? So when they arrived in China, the you know, Chinese officials greeted them, mm-hmm. gave them food, and let them stay for as as long as they like. The next day, the plane they hijacked, along with the passengers and crew, was re- sent back to Hong Kong, you know, and everybody was. Everybody was okay. Nobody was hurt. You know, so at least that's a, it's a good story for the headlines. So. Yeah, sure. It's probably a blast. Honestly, like I can imagine, some flights I've taken or be a lot. I prefer they got hijacked. Anyway, um, so what city? What cities did they go to? And so the six of them uh, stayed in Hunan for a while. You know, for the first year they. <clears throat> And what, what year was it? It was 1971? Oh yeah, 1971. Right, so they spent their first year uh, harvesting peat, uh, working in a communal farm. Yeah, one of, yeah in, in a communal farm, harvesting peaches, apparently, and learning Chinese in the afternoon. And mm-hmm. after a year, after a year, yeah, of integrating with the, Chinese, with the Chinese society and learning how to live and how to work in Chinese society, they were asked uh, where they wanted to do, where they wanted to go and what they wanted to do. Um, mm-hmm. Chua. So this was like a, this was like a re-education type thing? I mean, sort of. Like like, I, a, like, a, like inter- integrating, integrating them into socialism, right? Yeah, they, they integrated with the, with the community. Um, and if Alan, Alan, do you have anything to say about uh, what was going on? Uh, uh, at that time in that place? Uh, okay, so what was going on in China at this time? Um, in short, uh, this was moving towards the inactive or the sort of state authoritarian phase of, of the Cultural Revolution. And what I mean by that is uh, the opening years of the Cultural Revolution had been uh, radically uh, characterized by mass mobilization uh, which was a kind of a hallmark of, of Mao and the Chinese Revolution. But essentially, the state had eventually become paralyzed by uh, mass protests and power seizures, uh, such that the army, under the leadership of uh, Marshal Lin Biao, uh, had restored order under Mao's orders, uh, beginning kind of from 67, where they tried to broker uh, broker sort of uh, a power deal between 
uh, old cadres, mass representatives, and the military. But what ended up happening is is basically the military had to fill most of that role. And by 71, uh, China was was heavily militarized and the PLA was, was a substantial part of the government. So could you uh, tell us what life would be like for these hijackers in a uh, state farm in Hunan harvesting peaches? Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, it, it's it's it, it's very likely that this this uh, and Justin probably knows more about this than I do, but uh, they would have definitely lived a rather austere uh, but kind of meaningful life. Uh, in the sense that uh, sure. uh, life under uh, Mao's China, and specifically in the Cultural Revolution, was 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 regimented and orderly. Uh, but there would have been um, lots 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 of labor. But at that time, worker uh, worker uh, rights and such were actually at their strongest in China's recent history, and uh, they they probably they probably experienced uh, quite a quite a decent. Uh, transformation from from what might have been the normal lot of of workers elsewhere in the world at that time. Sure. And Justin, could you um, explain more about their uh, their like class background and class position as students in the Philippines? Yeah. So <clears throat> uh, the six of them were students, and they would come from they had come from a uh, petty bourgeois. Uh, class background, so so th these weren't exactly the poorest of the poor, or like poor farmers in the Philippines, but yeah. they weren't exactly part of the ruling class either. And like, they they clearly picked a side in the struggle between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. Uh, they really picked a side because besides the fact that they were political science students, they were also embedded in that. Uh, mass movement that we were talking about earlier. They were really exposed to ideas of national democracy, of Marxism, and, and that really fed into what, what they wanted to know and find out. So can you talk about um, how they ended up back in the Philippines and like what prompted them to leave China? <clears throat> so they stayed, stayed there for six years. They went their separate ways for a while doing different kinds of work. Chuba worked in an electronics factory, the other guys taught language or medicine or engineering. Yeah. And the Chinese the Chinese uh, sponsored yeah, their education for that. Right? <clears throat> but after, by nineteen seventy seven or after six years, right, they suddenly had this desire that they wanted to go back. So uh, part of it was homesickness. Well, part of it was the political situation because this was like a year after the death of Mao and then there was the death of Ford. So the, were they, they were, um, you said, we said, we talked earlier about how they, uh, how it was somewhat, they were somewhat inspired by inquisitiveness, right, to do this hijacking. They weren't, um, so by the end of the Cultural Revolution, they, were they all ideologically aligned with the Gang of Four at the time of the trial? They didn't really comment on the political situation because what I've read of what they said, they were uh, most of their comments revolved around their ex their personal experiences, and so okay. talking about uh, how there was a lot of work, work was okay. hard, but compared to how things are now in the Philippines, 
work in China was so much freer because they actually had a say. So, but politically, yeah, because there were there was some level of there was a degree mm -hmm. of worker democracy. Yes, under Mao that didn't exist, that doesn't exist in the Philippines today, certainly, or didn't exist uh, in their time. Yeah, but politically, they didn't really have much to say. Yeah, it was. It's clear that they they regard the experience as uh, overall positive, but when it comes to so what they thought of socialism of Mao, you know, they're usually they're actually pretty quiet okay. about it. For some reason. And were any of them involved in the National Democratic Movement in the Philippines upon return? Hmm. On their return, actually, they were arrested for four years. Okay. And then, uh, can, can you actually, can you go into their arrest? Yeah. So, at the time, there was no law against hijacking. Sure. Because it never happened. Um, they, actually, the anti-hijacking law was passed because of that hijacking. So how how long how much time was there between when they hijacked the plane and when the anti-hijacking law was passed? I believe it was two years or one one year after. Uh, not, not not sure, but that was the precedent, right? So when they returned, they couldn't try them for hijacking because there was no grandfather clause, right? They did something wrong, but. Uh, Philippine officials didn't know what to charge them with, so they ended up charging them for robbery. And so they stole a plane. <laughs> uh, nothing uh, about endangerment for the passengers. Uh, no, no, nothing about nothing about uh, endangerment or assault or whatever. It's just ha robbery. So they spent four years in prison in in Bikutan. So that's one of the one of the bigger prison camps in the Philippines. Usually political detainees are there you know, and other petty crime. You know, and there was no report of how they were mistreated or abused or tortured or anything, which is a surprise because at this, at this time, 1977, this was the height of martial law in the Philippines. And literally thousands of activists and leaders and students and everybody was... You know, Torture was the norm at this time, right? Even Jose Maria Sison, the founder of the Communist Party, was arrested the year before and he spent years in solitary confinement, right? So, it's an unusual thing to hear you know, six people arrested but nothing bad happened. Is it, is it because uh, they did this before the Communist Party was founded? No, actually, they did this after the Communist Party was founded. Uh, probably because they... They became in, uh, they became media sensations by the time, right? Oh, oh the arrest was after. Okay, mm. no, never mind. Because the hijacking was, an as was an international news item, right? It, oh, okay, okay. So my guess is the reason why they weren't, uh, they weren't subjected to anything really bad was because everybody was watching, right? Everybody was like. There is an international community looking at what would happen to these six former hijackers. Sure. They ended up uh, living quiet lives. Like uh, none of them ended um, up joining any mass movements. You know, none of them ended up uh, becoming mass leaders or activists. Right? Actually, um, it's actually hard to track down where most of them are now. One of them has died. Uh, one of them got married. Some. 
after a few years, right? Chua, for example, uh, now lives in a farm. Um, I want to go back a little bit. And you said that uh, after they left the uh, peach farm, they took they took up different jobs, and their their training for those jobs uh, was funded by the state. Uh, can you uh, break that down? A can you go into that a little more about what jobs they took and what their training? They were asked what they wanted to do, right? And they chose different jobs, right? For example, one one of them worked at an electronics factory, and part of that was part of that was uh, education and skills training on how to do these jobs. Right? So that was one thing that um, that's one of the things that is markedly different you know, about between China and the Philippines or really most uh, non-socialist societies because you just don't hear uh, stories of uh, the state asking a worker what do you want to do and will teach you how to do it, right? Yeah, it doesn't really happen. Mm -hmm. It's not something I'm familiar with. And the fact that these are political science students, and some of them went into medicine or engineering, sure. which is which are, which are you know, highly technical jobs right, that require expertise. And so that's that's really one thing that's diff. That's one of the things that is different. And uh, Alan, do you want to um, break down a little more how those uh, education programs for specialized jobs worked in China at that time? Um, unfortunately, this is not my area of expertise, uh, so I can't really say. Okay, that's all good. Um, definitely something to look into. Yeah, for sure. Um, I know that... Uh, especially especially when you compare it to, uh, like, I can speak for the United States, but I'm sure it's true in the Philippines as well, is that in, in capitalist economies, um, the bourgeoisie is puts effort into de-skilling the proletariat, right? Fast food and automation so that uh, workers know as little as possible um, and the training is as short as possible and that they can be replaced as quick as possible. And so so in um, to hear, you know, the difference during, the, during Mao, during the Cultural Revolution in China, where, you know, they were working on this peach farm and then they were, they were asked uh, by the state, you know, what do you want? What do you want to do next? And they all gave their answers and then got, and then the state invested in education um, for them, for their specialized jobs, uh, which presumably took a few months at least. Um, Justin, do you know how long the, the uh, There's took? no information. I haven't found any information on that. No. no. The thing about education under Mao is Mao okay. really emphasized the need for technical experts. Right? The, the things that he said that Mao, sure. Maoism or Mao, Maoist ideology talks about is the need for interaction between cadres and workers and experts uh, in industry, which I think is influenced by the uh, Sino-Soviet split. Sure. You know? Oh, okay, yes, for sure. So that caused a shift, right, in education. Or, so there really was this focus on uh, educate on teaching and educating the proletariat or Chinese on Chinese experts. And so 
what I would if I had to guess it's uh, their classes would be parallel with how when they were working so they were working the morning and then just at night or something like that and uh, um, if you see there's a documentary called how Yukon moved the mountains have you heard of it I've been meaning to watch that but I, I've heard of that but there's a there's a sequence in it there's a and I think I may have been shot in 71 but there's a um, there's one of the chapters of it is about a generator factory at that time and I imagine that uh, it's on YouTube it's called the it's called how Yukon moved the mountains episode whatever generator factory um, by George Evans and um, uh, it shows sort of what what it was like to work in a factory in China at that time right uh, there's there's on one hand, there's like the two things that stand out there in comparison to the factories that we're familiar with is the high level of workplace democracy and the high level of ideological development of the workers. Like they would, the two things that they would do when they weren't actively working the machines of the factory were vote on, vote and discuss uh, their wages and like whether or not there should be bonuses and like bourgeois right as we say right um whether or not there should be bonuses or um you know the, the distribution of you know labor vouchers and such as well as like the high level of ideological development where they're like discussing hegel right on their work break like i've had i've had you know i've had working class jobs in the united states you know, shoot the shit about Hegel very much in the break room. I mean, it's possible, but they would have like, okay, we're having a workplace meeting at 2 p.m. today to discuss Hegel. Well, China before the uh, before the Cultural Revolution was largely an illiterate nation, and one of the ways that uh, the Communist Party was able to uh, increase literacy so dramatically. Um, which, you know, was one of the gains of the Cultural Revolution, uh, was through the study of political texts. And so these study, study sessions were really the way by which a lot of people, especially uh, peasants who had been formerly illiterate, became literate. And uh, that's one thing that is not really talked about, especially in uh, like major liberal democratic accounts of the Cultural Revolution. They say, they say oh, oh, these are brainwashing sessions, jury ideological sessions. But really, there were ways by which the proletariat and the peasantry learned. Brainwashing the, the Chinese workers and peasants into being Hegelians. Exactly. Um, so I guess uh, to close off, um, I would ask, what is the relationship between Filipino Maoist, Filipino Maoism and China today? Um, since then, since 1976, or since the hijacking, um, really a lot of things have happened it's been more or less 50 years right and today Maoists and activists basically in the left of in the Filipino left uh, believe that China is no longer a socialist country if we are sure. going to compare sure. the experience of the six hijackers back in 1971 to what China is doing now it's really a market it's really different right there's and how does that how does that uh, impact the Philippines how does China impact the Philippines well, the first thing is 
uh, probably really consider China to be part of the imper global imperialist system, right? We consider China to be an imperialist nation. And so, and we really see that economically and how Chinese firms and Chinese businesses are dictating uh, who gets who gets natural resources and how it gets exported out of the Philippines politically and how uh, President Xi Jinping uh, more or less dictates foreign policy and economic policy to our so-called president Duterte and even militarily and how China Chinese vessels just get to push around fishing boats in the West Philippines. Um, do you know any specifics about which firms are extracting resources in the Philippines? Sure, in terms of Chinese businesses in the Philippines, right? Uh, most of them are infrastructure projects, like in terms of extracting natural resources. In the island of Palawan in the Philippines, which has the fifth largest nickel deposit in the entire world, there are uh, four foreign corporations, uh, Japanese, British, and one of them. One of them has is a partnership between Filipino and Chinese firms, and these export nickel to Chinese firms in China, in Shanghai, and then to import it back to the Philippines for uh, manufacturing and assembly job. And that's basically the definition of an import-dependent and export-oriented economy. Sure. So it's like, is is the Filipino left uh, into dependency theory? See, um, well, not exactly dependency theory, but we, but we take cues from you know, Lenin's definition of imperialism, right? And we, in this case, like the one that I talked about, right? This is how. That is that's how imperialism controls economies, right? By um, by allowing or by keeping uh, semi-feudal countries like the Philippines um, with a low state of technological improvement or in industrial improvements, in order to better extract natural resources, uh, they get to dictate uh, polit the political sphere, foreign relations, and culture, and so on. Um, the reason I bring up dependency theory is because uh, with dependency theory is is not a different thing than Leninism. Um, it's just the it's just the idea that like because like one thing that imperialists like China will say is that they're they're helping develop developing the uh, means of production in the Philippines. They're like taking it from a backwards country and, and developing it, right? Um, so with dependency theory, we look and we say like, okay, how are these you know third world countries countries in the global south developing their industrialization how does it look in parallel to the the first world right um and so so like the the means of production that that we have in the philippines are for extraction right um and not they they can't it can't easily be converted into a uh, a national converted into serving a national economy. Yeah, and I think that's the ironic part. Like we're talking about China, which uh, bootstrapped itself from being an agrarian econ backwards economy into building its own industries and build and commun 
building com- communal farms in an effort to build socialism. And then sure. now we're looking at China, which is one of the nations that is uh, ensuring that other countries like the Philippines are kept backwards and kept agrarian. Right? It's like uh, if we look at it back in the context of the Cultural Revolution, it's a, it's really uh, it's really going against what the goals of the culture were. Sure, because the Cultural Revolution was very uh, internationalist. It was there was high in, it was high proletarian internationalism in the Cultural Revolution. Uh, compared to China today. Yeah, and one of the main points of the GPCR were was the mass line, right? Like going from the making decisions from the masses. I think Alan talked about uh, worker. We we were talking about workers making decisions on wages and so on, and that was one of the main things of the Cultural Revolution, that that decisions would come from below, and now we're talk and now we're looking at the China. Which imposes decisions from the top. Imposes it not only not only on their own citizens, but um, is uh, is one of the uh, you know imperialists that are propping up the dictatorships in countries in the global south, like the Philippines, who themselves who themselves have domestic Maoist movements that are compelled by this ideology to actually struggle against Maoism. Um, one of the critical things uh, when trying to learn about China today and learn about the Cultural Revolution is that uh, we can't understand China's present path to capitalism without understanding the Cultural Revolution and the fact that the Cultural Revolution was targeting the very people who now run the People's Republic of China Um, today. And so can you go into a little bit about if there's any um, mass campaigns in the left-wing mass campaigns in the Philippines now uh, directed at Expelling Chinese imperialists. Like, like I said, I'm part of Bagong Aliansang Makabayan or Bayan for short. We are advocating is an end to imperialism you know, by expelling China, by asserting uh, the sovereign our sovereign rights in the West Philippine Sea, which back in 2015 was arbitrated and there was a decision in favor of the Philippines, you know, no less by the United Nations. Right? So. We- asserting that China should uh, respect that decision right and in more general terms we oppose you know, uh, imperialist plunder and imperialist uh, the entrance of foreign corporations in order to extract our natural resources and then so that's the mass movement right so those are that's the national democratic movement and they said that the democratic mass movement and then there's the the other current that i'm talking about is the revolutionary movement right and these are the maoists that we are talking about right so that's that's the party and the new people's army that that's establishing uh democratic government in the countryside and one of the things that they're doing is Expelling foreign corporations. Sure. Uh, by what by what means does the New People's Army expel foreign corporations? So <clears throat> they have this. I'm I'm not privy on their exact policy because I am not a member of the New People's sure. Army. Sure. Just get that out of the way. Yeah. But they 
Um, but basically, it depends on the corporation. If if it's uh, if it's a like for example, small mining corporate, a small corporation, they uh ask for tax, right? Because it's a different it's a different government, right? And but if we're talking about a large transnational corporation or a corporation that actively destroys the environment or destroys people's rights or literally by expelling the corporation by destroying equipment burning trucks and stuff yeah and yeah trying to push them out yeah. sure and of course as we know the number one imperialist in the philippines is not china but the united states the united states is still the num uh, is still there because even though uh currently the Duterte regime is being propped up by China, uh the United States the presence of the US can still be felt like in economic, political, cultural spheres and it's it's still uh the Philippine Philippine economy is still largely dependent on the United States. Well Justin Umali, thank you so much for uh, stopping by on the Lindia Power Hour. Thank you, thank you, thank you as well. Yeah, of course. And uh, thank you. Uh, thank you to our humble listeners who were there at the start, first episode, first bonus episode of Lindia Power Hour. But the first official episode comes out September 9th, so stay tuned. Mm-hmm.